In the name of God, Creator, Christ, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning. I am Marianne Buddy, and for the past seven years, I've had the privilege of serving as the bishop of this diocese, which among other things means that every Sunday I, I get to worship in a different church, one of 88 churches throughout the District of Columbia and four counties of Maryland. So I bring you greetings from your fellow Episcopalians from around and about, and I'm especially happy to be worshiping with you at St. John's today, a great admirer of your ministry, of your leaders, uh, your lay leaders, and especially your your rector, Sari, whom I consider a great friend. And if you are new today, if you are worshiping today for the first time, um, I'm here too, sort of here, new, and um, I, on behalf of this amazing congregation, I welcome you. Last week I sat down and read in its entirety one of the biblical accounts, accounts of Jesus' life. I chose the Gospel of Luke in order to prepare for a more prayerful, slower reading that our presiding bishop, Michael Curry, has invited all in the Episcopal Church to undertake, starting today and continuing throughout the 40-day season of Lent, which begins on Wednesday. The Gospel of Luke is the first selection of the Episcopal Church's Good Book Club, which will continue after Easter with a church-wide reading of the Acts of the Apostles, the sequel to Luke that tells the story of the early church. Now this week, obviously, I was reading for breadth, not depth, taking the entire arc of Jesus's life and death into account. It took me about two hours. Now had I been reading the Gospel of Mark, I would have been done in 50 minutes. For while the narrative of Jesus's life is essentially the same, in three, the first three accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, if you're in a hurry, Mark is the leaner one with more action and less teaching. But all three land on the story that we heard read just now. And when I came to Luke's telling of it, I realized how much the importance of that fateful day when Jesus took three of his closest disciples with him up on a mountain, how the importance of that is amplified when we remember its place in the larger story. Now, to be sure this wasn't the first time that Jesus went off to a secluded place to pray, that was, as scripture tells us, that was his custom. He would go to a mountain or into the wilderness or alone in a synagogue to pray. And the texts rarely tell us what happened in his time of prayer, but in this instance, they all do. And we can understand why. For on that mountain, on that day, Jesus was swept up into a transcendent experience. His countenance was transformed by light. He was visited by two of the great spiritual ancestors of our faith. A divine voice spoke from a cloud as it had at his baptism, confirming for all to see his identity as God's son. This was, by all accounts, a big deal. But Jesus, Peter, and James and John didn't talk about this to anyone when they came down the mountain. As Mark tells the story, Jesus orders the others not to say anything until after his death. 
In Luke's version, it simply says that they all kept silent and dared not tell anyone of the things they had seen. Why not? Why not speak of such an amazing event, so confirming of his identity as God's chosen, so unambiguous in glory? I think it's only when we widen the lens and place the story in context that we're given a clue as to why Jesus would insist or they themselves would choose to keep silent. Remember that Jesus' public ministry, which began after his baptism in the Jordan River and his 40 days of temptation in the wilderness, remember that it all took place in the northern part of the country around the Sea of Galilee, which is where he grew up. And he taught in synagogues and open spaces. He healed people of diseases. He cast out demons, the inner tormentors that by whatever name we call them can make life for a person living hell. By doing all these things, he created quite a name for himself, established a large following. And he made those in authority, political and religious authority, pretty nervous by what he said and did, and especially how the crowds responded to him. And all through this, as you're reading along, all through this time, a question is hovering in the air. Who is this man? He speaks with such authority. He speaks with such love. He has compassion for those we are taught to ignore. He has patience with all manner of sinners, except those who lord their authority over others. He He speaks of God as if he knows God intimately and invites us to do the same. And in his presence, there is healing. There's food in abundance. There's life. And the more people spent time around him, the more convinced they became that he was no ordinary man. That if God were to visit us in human form, this is what God would look like. And Jesus himself wasn't exactly discouraging this manner of thinking about him. Although in these three versions of the story, he doesn't emphasize it. He wants to focus more on the kingdom of God that he's proclaiming. But the question about him lingers. Imagine what hope would be stirred by such a man, such expectation for healing and liberation, anticipation that... God's almighty power at last would cast down the mighty from their thrones and lift up the lowly. There was, there was excitement in the air. There was the stirrings of movement, maybe even a revolution. Then, in a turn that no one anticipated, no one in his inner circle, certainly no one in the adoring crowds could have anticipated, Jesus begins to speak quite openly about suffering and specifically his own suffering and his inevitable death. And no one wanted to hear this. In fact, they couldn't hear it in the way that we can't hear something when we don't have a frame of reference to place something in. You know, they just couldn't believe that this one upon upon whom all of their hopes were pinned was to die. And precisely six days, according to Mark, eight days, according to Luke, not sure 
what the weekend difference meant, but precisely six days after he broached the subject of his suffering and death, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on that mountain, and they saw in him what could only be described as sheer glory. But for Jesus, this experience of divine affirmation did not contradict his foreboding sense of what was to come. Instead, it confirmed it. In Luke's version, the conversation between Moses, Elijah, and Jesus is very explicit. They spoke to him about his departure, his exodus, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. They were preparing him for what lay ahead. Suffering was the path. And when Jesus came down the mountain, he began to walk toward it. Onto Jerusalem, he said to his followers, where my fate awaits. Maybe he didn't want to talk about what happened on the mountain because to an outsider it seemed to affirm all of those illusions of glory and power when in fact what he was facing next was the reality of suffering and his death. And I wonder if the disciples didn't want to talk about it because it was too much to hold the one upon whom all their hopes were, were clinging was asking them to follow him to Jerusalem to die. This this juxtaposition of love and suffering, of the inevitability of suffering in a life devoted to love, it lies right at the heart of the Christian faith. I've been ordained for over 30 years, and I have never fully understood this, but I have seen it. And I've seen it lived in the lives of remarkably brave human beings. And I've come to believe in its truth and its power. No matter how hard I resist every day, the reality of suffering or the possibility of suffering in my life and especially in the lives of those I love. But every year at this time, we as followers of Jesus are invited in the midst of everything else that our lives will ask of us between now and Easter day to keep part of our mind's eye and part of our spiritual heart focused on Jesus walking to Jerusalem. Which is not the easiest thing to do. Who wouldn't want to stay on a mountain of glory or at the very least choose the path of least resistance where we can maintain the sweet illusions that our lives are all just fine. So hold that image, if you would, of Jesus' walking toward Jerusalem, toward his suffering, while I tell you about another person who's doing the very same thing right now. Kate Bowler is a history professor at Duke University Divinity School, and she specializes in the study of the prosperity gospel, a creed, a belief system that sees fortune as a blessing from God and misfortune as a mark of either God's disapproval or of our, frankly, not trying hard enough. And at 35, everything in her life seems to be pointing toward blessings of its own. 
She scored her dream job right out of graduate school. She married her high school sweetheart and was hopelessly smitten with their toddler son. And then she was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer, terminal. And in a radio interview, she said this, my diagnosis was like a bomb that went off and everything around me was free. And my first thought was, oh my gosh, did I actually expect that everything was gonna work out for me? Before my diagnosis, I assumed that I was the architect of my life. I can relate to that. That I could overcome anything with a little pluck and determination. And I pictured my life as this enhancement project, as if my life were a bucket and my job was to put things in the bucket. And the whole purpose was to figure out how to have as many good things coexisting at the same time. But then everything fell apart and I had to make a switch in my image of life. Maybe it's not a bucket. Maybe it's more like moving from vine to vine and I'm grabbing on, hoping for dear life that the vine doesn't break. So I started practicing giving things away, she said. I, I imagined my husband living without me, raising our son alone. And then the people I loved would come back to me and say, we are going to fight this. And they wanted to pour their certainty back into me to remake the foundations, remake the world as it was. But for me, there wasn't any going back. And she writes a memoir, and listen to the title. Her title is, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I Have Loved. And in that chronicle, and in that memoir, she chronicles her first year a year she was not expected to survive, but did in large measure thanks to harsh chemotherapy treatments combined with experimental immunotherapy. And very near the end of the book, she describes the moment when her doctor suggests that it's now time to stop both regimens of chemotherapy because they're no longer helping and they're actually harming her body, and to rely solely now on the immunotherapy. And she says it feels as if two of the vines her life depends upon are now going to be cut and she'll swing on one vine, hoping it will hold her up. And she doesn't know what to do. I'm not sure I want to know what happens when I stop chemotherapy, she told her doctor, but at the same time, I want to get this over with. And she looks at him and asks, what would you do? And he said, well, you know, we're all terminal. You just have more information. If I were you, I'd go back to work. And she realized that she was in the presence of one who was well acquainted with suffering. And that that's what he did. He went back to work. And she said, I'm afraid of dying. And he said, yeah, don't skip ahead to the end. So that's what she's done. She's gone back to work. She's doing the best to cherish each day and not to skip ahead to the end. Yes, I'm going to die, she writes her last sentence of her memoir, but not today. Today is a day to make pancakes with my son. And you know, as I thought about it, that's exactly what Jesus did after coming down the mountain. He saw what was ahead. He saw the end. 
But he didn't quit living. And he didn't skip ahead to the end. He just started walking to Jerusalem. And as he walked, he continued doing what he had always done. He healed the sick. He fed the hungry. He preached good news to the poor. He made the religious authorities really nervous. Yes, he was going to die. But not yet. And there was still good work to be done. If anything, what I hope you take away from this juxtaposition of Jesus coming to terms with suffering and Kate Bowler's story is simply this, that it's good to remember from time to time that life is not a bucket that we are to put as many good things into as we can, to remember that life is a mystery and a gift and a journey, and the journey has an end. And that suffering and death are the greatest frontiers of our life, well beyond our understanding. But they're not our fault, and they're not outside God's grace and love when they come to us, whenever they do, as they will. It's the price of being human in a world where the kingdom of God has not yet fully come. But knowing this, we needn't skip to the end either. We can live each day as fully as we can. We can do the work God has given us to do. And if we choose, we can follow Jesus in his way of love. I invite you to pray with me, if you would. Lord, Lord Christ, there are many reasons given to us as to why you had to suffer and die some of them helpful to us and many that are not. Today, we simply want to acknowledge how you faced into your fate with such courage and continue to love, continue to do your work on earth, giving us an example and a model to do the same. And we pray that when we are faced with the hardest of things, as you were, or when we walk with those who are facing their Jerusalem, that we might be open and present and loving, that we not skip to the end, but to embrace each moment, each grace, each opportunity to love as you have loved. In your name we pray. Amen.